three, two, one. Hit it. What? Reversal of fortune. That's why I tell my friends everything happens for Seriously, a Seriously, you had one job. I, just, I, I can't with Jesus some of these people. Put down um, on your goddamn cell phone. I don't think my dad even knows how to use a computer. Uh, Would uh, you rather? All right, trust me, take no, my advice. No, but seriously, that legit happened. How's it going, guys? Welcome to Nervous Habits. This week, I'm joined by Luke Burgess. He's the author of the book, Wanting, The Power of Mimetic Desire in Everyday Life. And we explore issues including... Why exactly we want the things that we want? What's so special about mirror neurons? How babies learn to imitate within minutes of their birth? Why fulfillment stories are an effective way to overcome your mimetic impulses? And finally, why you should pick one desire to suffer over and let go of your lesser desires. All that and so much more on another episode of... Nervous Habits. Hey guys, I have been feeling sort of introspective lately. And I think part of it is the fact that when this episode is released, I will have reached the age of 29. And I have mixed feelings about that. Um, You know, I've long argued that 29 is the worst age. (laughs) Or rather, 29 is the worst birthday because if you think about it, your teenage years, this is this is my theory, your teenage years are all about having fun and making mistakes. And your 20s are about being independent and, you know, learning to be on your own and making friends and, you know, experimenting in your career and in relationships. And by the time you're at 30, that's when, you know, you got to get serious. You got to settle down, find a job that you love um, and figure out, you know, what you're going to do for the rest of your life. And I think most people have that conception of being 30 as when, all right, time to go. Let's, you know, let's, let's figure it out. And I think 29, the reason why I think 29 is a worse age than 30 is because 29 is almost like, you know, almost like you're in the, uh, in the execution chamber and (laughs) sorry, it's sort of a gruesome analogy, but you're, you're just sort of like waiting for the, um, for the, or rather you're in the, not the execution chamber, you're in the electric chair, you're waiting for the executioner to pull the switch um, because it's the countdown. This is the last 365 days that you have as a 29-year-old until until you got to clean clean things up. And um, and so, you know, being that I, I, I'm about to turn 29 and when this episode comes out, I will be 29. It, you know, it's got me sort of thinking, reflecting on, on my life and in general, like, like how we structure our lives and, uh, you know, and, and that, that bleeds into the conversation that, uh, I, I had this week, but before I get there, there's, there's a concept in life that I always think about and it's the, the idea of climbing the achievement ladder, you know, always thinking, planning for what comes next. When you're in fifth grade, you're planning for sixth grade. You're in sixth grade, then you're preparing to go to high school. Then when you're in high school, you want to do well in your exams because you got to go to college. And then when you're in college, well, you better, you know, you you better uh, have success there because you got to get ready for graduate school or law school or med school or finding a job. And then for me, you know, you go to law school and then you, you know, uh, you want to get a job at at a law firm or working for an agency or the government. 
And then after that, you got to be thinking, all right, then I got to go climb the ladder there and, you know, make partner. And, um, and uh, it just, it never ends. And I think part of the reason why we have this conception of an achievement ladder is the idea of uh, mimetic desires, which is what I'm, uh, which is what this episode is about, which answers the question of why we want the things we want. You know, think about the clothing that you're wearing right now. Um, You know, what, what prompted you to buy that brand, that style, that color? You probably thought, oh, that's what other people are wearing. That's what is acceptable. That's what other people might like. Um, you know, why did you choose the company that you're working at now? Why did you choose the profession you're in? Why did you choose the school you're going to? In part, it was because there are other people there whose, um, whose lives maybe you, you emulate or, uh, the, in the case of a profession, um, a profession that has prestige, a profession that has some influence or, or a degree of, of star, status or merit. Um, you know, you think about the restaurants you go to. Why do you go there and nowhere else? Well, it has to do with the fact that um, other people, you know, other lots of other people go there and there's something of an information cascade uh, because one person goes and, you know, they say they like it and then the next person goes and say they like it and it trickles down. Um, and obviously, you know, we'll talk lots in my conversation with Luke about the influence that, um, uh, social media has on these structures. But I do think that when you think about desires, there is, you know, an, an, uh, an aspect of mimesis or, or imitation. Um, mimetics is just a fan- fancy, fancy way of saying imitation in all of these things. And, as we, we think about like large scale, why we live our lives the way we do, I, I do think there's, you know, I do think memetics plays an impact. I mean, ask yourself this, if you were, if you were living a solitary lifestyle, um, or even it doesn't, doesn't even have to be solitary, a lifestyle where you interact with significantly less people than you do, where you have less, less exposure to as many people as you do to, to less stimuli. Would you live your life the same way? Would you make the same micro decisions about what to buy, what to eat, where to go, about climbing that achievement ladder, where to go to school, where to work, what to do, what your values are? And I think the answer is no. Um, and and that's part of what my conversation this week is all about uh, with, with Luke Burgess. And Luke is the author of a brand new book, Wanting. The Power of Mimetic Desire in Everyday Life. He's founded and led multiple companies and is currently entrepreneur in residence and director of programs at the Chiaka, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, Chiaka Center for Principled Entrepreneurship at the Catholic University of America, where he teaches business and develops new education initiatives. Luke is the founder and director of Fourth Wall Ventures, an incubator for people and companies that contribute to the formation of a healthy human ecology. And he graduated from NYU Stern School of Business and later from a pontifical university in Rome where he studied theology. He currently lives in Washington, D.C., just a hop and a skip away from where I am with his wife, 
Claire. So this was one of the more uh, enjoyable conversations that I've had on the pod. And I know I, say, I know they say that before most of my interviews. Um, so it's almost like it's almost like the kid in uh in school that tells everyone they're they're the smartest or the nicest. I have a few friends like that. But um, no, seriously though, I I I can't tell you guys how how much I enjoyed um reading his book, and and you'll you'll hear it come through in the conversation. But uh, it's you know we touched on a lot of different things in how and you know where imitation applies, uh, whether that be in romance and dating or in pop culture um, or in, uh, in or in the case of your career. Um, so there's lots of different applications, and I actually have a lot more to say um, about this after my conversation with Luke because there's a couple things we didn't get a chance uh, to touch on, uh, particularly with regard to f- uh, fulfillment stories, which you'll hear about in a minute. But I want to give you guys a chance to hear from Luke himself. So without further ado, my conversation with Luke Burgess. Nervous Habits Podcast is sponsored by Ritual. Guys, how many of you take a multivitamin every day? If you answered no to that question, why not? I think that... Yeah, and this is something my, my dad always says. Health is number one. There's just no substitution for good health. When your health goes, everything follows. And I think that's why it's important to prioritize taking a vitamin every day. That's certainly why I started taking uh, my Ritual Multivitamin Essential for Men um, every day. And I've, I've been taking it for the last um, couple of months. And it's just become part of my, you know, daily routine, part of my da- my daily nervous habits. I uh, just pop in a couple of these ritual vitamins in the morning and, you know, feeling energized and refreshed and ready to go about my day. So ritual is the multivitamin reimagined. A multivitamin should contain key nutrients in forms that your body can actually use to help fill gaps in your diet. So there's no shady extras in here. Ritual has a delayed release capsule design, which delivers high quality nutrients, including vitamin D3 in just two daily pills. So get key nutrients without any of the BS. Ritual is offering my listeners 10% off your first three months by visiting ritual.com slash nervous to start your ritual today. Visit ritual.com slash nervous, N-E-R-V-O-U-S. I'm not sure, I'm not sure I needed to spell that out, but ritual.com slash nervous to start your ritual today and get 10% off your first three months. For my listeners, get your ritual vitamins today. And now back to the show. Luke Burgess, welcome to Nervous Habits. Thanks for having me on. I just want to say right out of the gate, uh, something that I really appreciated about the book um, was that it was absolutely overflowing with references to movies, sports, literature, history. In just one sentence, Luke, you went from describing a ritual in ancient Israel to talking about Steve Bartman and the Cubs, right to a reference to the TV show, The Bachelor. It's just (laughs) profoundly relatable stuff. And I wonder what your thinking was in drawing on so many different references in your book. Uh, thanks for appreciating that. Uh, I was going for that, actually, because a lot of the Girard stuff that's out there over the last 50 years plus has been very academic. Uh, so I, I thought one contribution that I could make to, you know, getting Girard's name out there and allowing people to appreciate him would be to draw on some cultural things, things that are relevant for people. Uh, never a bad idea to talk about sports. I'm a huge sports fan. Unfortunately, Michigan sports teams like the Lions mm. and the Tigers. <laughs> Uh, so that hasn't worked out too well for me. Um, but you know, yeah, I, I think that um, mimetic desire, which is the topic of the book, is something that 
you know, just needs to be relatable because it, we see it around us all over the place in our world and in our daily lives. So I think that was a really important thing to do to try to make this come alive and, and seem like relevant on a daily basis for people. Yeah. I mean, I mean, Luke, we'll talk throughout the podcast about all the different applications um, for mimetic theory in, um, in everyday life and uh, in the context of, of pop culture and sports. But I'll admit that before reading the book, I'd never actually explicitly heard of the language of memetic theory. And I can imagine most listeners are sort of scratching their heads wondering what that is. So before, you know, you heard about uh, Rene Girard, had you heard about the concept? I had never heard about the concept, like 99.9% of the population. Um, so you're in good company there. Uh, no, it totally unfamiliar to me. But it, I feel like what it did is give language or named something that I already sort of knew existed or I'd intuited was something that was real. So mimetic desire, it sounds like kind of academic jargon, mm -hmm. but it's just describing a reality that I think everybody can relate to, which yeah, I'd be happy to describe a little bit more about what that specifically means. Yeah, definitely. So I mean, I mean for, for folks that, that don't have a sense of, of what it, of what mimetic desire is, can you go into a little bit more detail? Sure. So the word mimetic is a fancy word for imitation. So it means imitative desire, but mimetic is slightly different than, than imitation. So let me just step back and explain what mimetic desire is in the simplest possible terms. Most people don't really think about why they want the things that they want. Uh, it's like, I want to go to Harvard. Why? Well, because Harvard's the best. Well, maybe, but why you probably want to go to Harvard is more a product of desire than it is an objective evaluation of, of, of the, the choice. Same thing with people. Like I want to be with this person. Well, why do you want to be with her? Well, she's just the best for me. She's great. You know, she's beautiful. Um, I'm sure all of those things are true, uh, but there's a deeper sort of layer of why we desire things in the first place. There's a process through which we come to desire things that most people don't really realize. So we typically have this idea of desire, if we think about it at all, whereby desire is like very independent and autonomous and rational. Like I see this thing, I evaluate its criteria, and I decide that it's good for me. Mimetic desire is, is kind of blows that notion away. It's not that you know, we don't evaluate things on an objective basis, but mimetic desire is an acknowledgement that we're highly, highly social creatures. And that one of the things that's very social is the way that we desire. So desire itself is social and we, we come to want most things through a social process. We look to our right and right, our left and what other people want is extremely important to a human being. And that drives a far greater degree of human behavior and why people pursue the things that they pursue than most people acknowledge. So mimetic desire is, is wanting things because other people wanted them first. It's interesting. I mean, I, I mean, I think there's something very intuitive about that. It's, you, you know, it, it's, it's in the world all around us. You walk past a crowded restaurant. It must be good. You know, you, you want to make a purchase on Amazon. You go to the one that has the most reviews. Um, but on the other hand, Luke, I think there's, there's people out there who think there's something, uh, you know, inherently bad about imitation um, that it's unoriginal and derivative that no one wants to be an imitator. But in the book, 
you suggest that imitation might not be a bad thing after all. So, so why is that the case? Yeah, I mean, some of the greatest innovations and developments in human history have come about through imitation. For instance, uh, Henry Ford, he got the idea for the assembly line by looking at butchers who broke a pig up into its component parts and had different stations for, for butchering the parts of the pig. He saw that and just translated that to, to car manufacturing. And that was the genesis of the assembly line. So in a sense, like imitating this process that, that was already in existence and just seeing a new application for it. We could go on and on and on. I mean, some of the most beautiful architecture in the world, like Sagrada Familia in Spain, was literally an imitation of nature. So, so the line between imitation and innovation is, is very blurred. And I think most people think that if you're innovating, you're not imitating or vice versa. And that's just not the case. They're, these things are highly related. And we also have to acknowledge that imitation plays an absolutely critical role in human society and human life. I mean, imitation is what separates us from all of the other animals. Aristotle realized that mm. 2,400 years ago. We're the most imitative creatures in the world, and it's what has allowed us to, to learn. It's the foundation of education. It's how we learn languages. Like babies have some freakish powers of imitation. We could go into that. So imitation is really what allows us to grow and develop. It allows us to connect with other people. It's the basis of communication. Everybody knows that you know, imitating communication is really important. Uh, like if you and I, if our, if our imitation of facial, facial gestures and the style of our emails back and forth, um, if, you know, there's kind of a, an element of tone matching. And when that kind of is a little bit off, like we notice it right away. So the, like the imitation forms the basis of getting to know other people, of connecting with other people. And it's so built into the fabric of how we relate to other humans. We, we typically don't even think about it. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of great insights in, in your response there. I actually hadn't heard of uh, the uh, Henry Ford, um, you know, the basis for his invention of the assembly line being being the uh, anatomy of the pig. That's really interesting. But I think I think at, there's something in what you said about how like every great innovation is sort of you know built on what came beforehand. It, that's the whole concept, I guess, of of not reinventing the wheel. So I think I, I think there's there's something to that. Um, and earlier, you know, when you mentioned why we want the things we want, it calls to mind the the idea of our hierarchy of of needs. And this is something you talk about in the book. How you know we've been trained that there is almost like a pyramid with physical and safety needs at the bottom and self actualization at the top. But Gerard argued, and, and what you also posit, is that once we meet our basic needs as humans, we enter the world of desires where there is no real hierarchy. So can you flesh that out for, for listeners? Sure. So Maslow's hierarchy of needs, just as a refresher, it's a pyramid with typically five levels in it. So the bottom level, the things that are our basic needs, the, things we, the needs we want to meet first are physical. And after that, we move to safety. And after that, love and belonging and then esteem, and then self-actualization. So the, the bottom two are very basic needs. I think we can all relate to that. Physical needs, um, if I'm hungry, I need to eat. Uh, safety, if I'm cold, I need to find warmth really quickly. Mm -hmm. Those first two levels of Maslow's pyramid, you could think of them as very instinctual. I, I don't, if I'm hungry and you put a big juicy like steak in front of me, I'm going to eat it. 
you know, it's like, like dogs are the same way. Mm -hmm. So those physical and safety needs, we have like built in biological instinctual mechanisms to pursue them. But if you really think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, after those first two levels, think about it, love and belonging, esteem, self-actualization. After those first two levels where we have the built in sort of radar, so to speak, those top three levels are don't seem very much like needs. I mean, sure, we we want love, but they're much more driven by desires. And in a certain sense, you can cut the whole top off of the pyramid after the first two levels and think of the rest of it as the universe of desire rather than needs. Because the way that we hone in on objects of desire are different than the way that we hone in on, on things that we need, like warmth or food, things like, or water or things like that. The way that we hone in on objects of desire, we don't have an instinctual basis. There's millions of different objects of desire in the world from brands to potential spouses, you name it. Mm -hmm. How do we, you know, how, how do we sort of begin to move towards one or another when there's no instinctual basis for doing so? And you know, Girard didn't use the, the example of Maslow's hierarchy. I should be clear about that. This is my own framework for understanding his theory. I think it's a helpful one because most people are familiar with Maslow's hierarchy. Girard said, in the universe of desire, it's not this strict hierarchy where we move up and kind of like, sent, you know, go to self-actualization. The universe of desire is like wide open. And the way that we choose which objects of desire to pursue relies not on some kind of instinctual drive that's built into our evolutionary biology, mm. but on models. We, we look to other people and we, we use them as our signposts for what to pursue when we enter this world of more abstract things, less concrete and more abstract. So just to clarify for listeners, um, the bottom two levels, so to speak, when you talk about physical, physical safety needs, hunger, um, sleep, shelter, those are physiological. Those are not necessarily based on, on imitation, whether or not other people are eating steak. If you're hungry, you're still going to eat steak. But when it comes to the universe of desires, the, the you know, top levels of the pyramid, what you guys are positing is that that is purely based on, on imitation, whereas the physiological side is not. I would say the lines are, are not quite, it, it's not so black and white because even in those bottom two levels, uh, I would say that imita imitation plays a role because now if I want to go drink a bottle of water and I go to the, you know, a stand in New York, there's going to be eight or nine different brands of bottled water that I could buy. Like, why mm -hmm. do I buy Aquafina versus Voss or something like that? Uh, that is not, you know, that has mimetic desire is even coming into play in those bottom two levels. More and more of our world, like we're not just trying to survive. 2,500 years ago, 3,000 years ago, um, there, was, there was kind of less choice in those kinds of things. So I would say that the universe of desire is even creeping down for most of us into those first two levels. I mean, maybe even those first two levels might be mostly about desires. Because I, you know, I, I don't really, I have a lot of choice in the matter, even in serving my basic needs. The wow. idea is simply that as we, as we move up in the hierarchy, when we get to these more abstract things, like what kind of jobs to pursue, kind of partners, uh, you know, where to vacation, then it's almost entirely driven through this mimetic process. 
And I wonder, you know, if we take like a 10,000 foot view of, of the period that we're at in, in history and in, in the 21st century and the, you know, the universality of, of technology and the pr progressiveness of advancement, if that's really what you just said, if that's how we would characterize this period at how our basic needs are being encroached upon by commodities, by um, consumerism. And it's, it's not just, whereas a couple hundred years ago, as you said, it was just desires and luxuries that were being influenced uh, by imitation and what other people are doing. Now it's pretty much our, our instinctual drives are even influenced. No, that, that's kind of what I was trying to articulate too. I think you summed it up really nicely. And in a way you could think of our world as becoming more driven by mimesis because it's more abstract and cryptocurrencies, things like this. I mean, certainly no kind of instinctual basis for quote, wanting some of these things. So as our world becomes more mimetic and more filled with more of these abstract desires, it's extra important to understand what mimetic desire is and the way that it operates because it's, you could argue that our, our whole entire, most of our desires are, are mimetic. Some right. people would argue that 100% of them are. Um, so it's really important to understand how this works. So I want to take a step back. You, you alluded to babies a little while ago. Um, and in the book, you talk about a 1977 experiment done that showed that infants as young as 42 minutes old mimicked a researcher's facial expression. So what's going on here? Yeah, so as our scientific advancements, we learn more about babies and we study babies, we're just learning fascinating things about human beings in general. So babies, it seems, even learn how to imitate in the womb. So by the third trimester, a baby is listening to her mother's voice. Uh, and depending on the language that the mother speaks, whether it's Chinese or German or English, learning things about intonation and, and the language to the point that when a newborn baby cries, that baby will cry differently depending on the language that the mother spoke. So a Chinese baby will cry differently than a German baby because Chinese is a highly tonal language. And that's how deep-seated the imitation is. And in that 1977 study that I cite in the book, Dr. Andy Meltzoff uh, from the University of Washington, he went to a hospital and they, they conducted a scientific experiment with newborn babies, um, anywhere from a few seconds old to uh, 45 to 50 minutes old. And they would do things like stick out their tongues at these babies and see what the babies did. And what was fascinating is that the babies imitated the facial gestures of the researchers. So when Andy stuck out his tongue at a newborn baby, just 42 minutes old and made a certain face, the baby imitated not just the tongue protrusion, but seemed to imitate a lot of that facial expression. Wow. The fascinating thing is that the babies don't do that for non-humans. They don't do that. So they, they've tested this with uh, figures on TV screens and robots. The babies only respond in this way to another human being's face. So in a sense, the baby immediately recognizes that this other creature is like me. Like oh. a, the baby senses that there's a specific connection with the other human being and that this other human is one to imitate. And I, I mean, that's not a rational process. It just happens that way. But I think that study is fascinating because it shows the extent to which imitation is just rooted in like the very nature of a human person. 
That's incredible. I mean, I mean, the baby comes out of the womb 40 minutes later. Um, there's something that's just, in, like you said, instilled in us since birth that they're able to just mimic those expressions. And you also mention in the book that babies will follow their mother's gaze. That's to say, if a mother's looking at something, the baby will also look at, at the same thing. Uh, is that right? Yeah. So that's called joint visual attention in the research. And shortly after this period, right, very shortly after birth, a baby, one of the first things that a baby learns how to do um, is certainly look into her mother's eyes, but it doesn't take very long until the baby starts noticing what the mother is looking at. So if the mother looks at you know beautiful flower on the table and admires it, the baby can track the mother's gaze to that object. Mm. And you'll, you'll notice the baby looking at the mother's eyes, looking at the flower, looking at the mother's eyes, looking at the flower. So already kind of intuiting that this thing that the mother is looking at must be important in some way. You could even say that, you know, the mother desires this object, this beautiful flower, therefore it must be important. So the baby is already learning in a certain sense, mimetic desire. And the crazy thing is, I think the study that's most fascinating that Metzoff did, he took toddlers and they conducted an experiment where they, they had like a toy dumbbell, like uh, with styrofoam wasn't mm -hmm. real. And in front of these babies, the researchers would act as if they were trying to pull the ends off of the dumbbell, but they would intentionally like fail to do that. Like they, they would act like their hand was slipping and they weren't able to take this toy apart. When they gave it to the babies, to the toddlers, the toddlers didn't imitate their failed attempt. The toddlers immediately took the dumbbell apart. So what they were imitating was the intention of the researchers. So they, they had read beyond the surface level action and realized that, well, what this person wanted to do that they couldn't do is pull the ends off of his little toy. So, and the babies just did it immediately. So they were intuiting the desire of the researcher and imitating that desire. And mm. that provides a fascinating insight into mimetic desire that we're, we were doing this when we were babies. And as we grow into adults, we just end up doing this in a far more sophisticated way. That's remarkable. Um, and, and going back to what you said about joint visual attention, how the baby will track the mother's gaze and look at the mother, what the mother's looking at and ascribe importance to it. You know why that's worrisome? Um, I, I think it's problematic, Luke, when you consider cell phones, because I remember when I lived in New York, uh, I would ride the subway for, uh, train home every day and I would see mothers on the train with babies on their lap. And the mother would be on the phone scrolling through Instagram and I would actually watch the baby's eyes and the baby would look to the phone and then sort of wonder what's, you know, what's so important about the phone. And I actually think, and, and I'm curious to hear your take on it, that this might almost imprint the significance of the phone onto the baby at a young age. What do you think about that? I think that's probably right. And, you know, that's why all of us need to know that we're being watched. <laughs> we're huh. being watched by somebody who considers us a model of behavior in some way, um, a model of desire, a model for how we use social media, uh, and nobody more than a parent to a young child. I mean, uh, parents are the only models of desire, models for anything, frankly, that a, that a young child has. Um, so there's nothing more important than modeling behavior. They will always pay attention to what we do uh, far more than what we say. You know, we're, because we're mimetic creatures, um, 
you know, children are really smart and they have a crazy intuition and um, we can say one thing uh, and then act another way. And they'll, they'll place far more importance on, on the way that we act and, and what we care about. They care about what we care about. Um, now, when, when they become adolescents, you know, that, that, that can change and they can reject it. That's a whole nother story. Probably don't have time to get into, but um, somebody's always watching. I, I think that's the big takeaway there. Mm-hmm. For sure, for sure, especially when they're when they're that young and that that impressionable, um, as old as you know, just a few minutes or, or an hour, they're able to sort of come to those conclusions. Uh, so I, I want to turn to um, a discussion about mirror neurons because I know mm-hmm. it's something you mentioned in the book, and I actually discussed it in a prior episode. But for those people who have never heard of mirror neurons, what are they, and how do they factor into this into this analysis? So mirror neurons were accidentally discovered in the 90s in Parma, Italy, where some researchers were studying monkeys. And they and I, there's probably some mythology about exactly uh, what happened when they discovered this. But uh, the story that I've heard uh, is that a monkey was hooked up to a device that tracked what neurons inside the monkey's brain were firing when the monkey did certain things. And in one particular episode, somebody ate an ice cream cone. And as this researcher was eating a gelato that he'd got on the streets of Parma and went back into the, to the lab, he looked at the machine that was monitoring the monkey's brain and noticed that the neurons that were firing like crazy in the monkey's brain were the same neurons that would be firing if that monkey had been eating a gelato himself. Mm. So just the act of watching this other person eating the ice cream was firing the same mirror neurons in the monkey's brain as if he had been, you know, performing that act himself. So whether the ice cream story is true or not, I'm not sure. Um, But it does seem like they sort of accidentally stumbled on this finding that just by merely watching somebody else do something or desire something, um, those neurons are are, are fired in our brains as well. Now, you know, monkey and human brains um, are different. And, you know, it's unclear the extent to which these mirror neurons work in a human the way that they, they do in the monkeys, but it does seem to point to this idea of, of mimetic desire um, and that there's a neurological basis for this kind of behavior. Is that the origin of the phrase monkey see monkey do? It might be. That's a really good question. I, no, I, as you're as you're as you're explaining that, I mean, I, I'm just I'm I'm imagining someone listening to this, thinking like, oh, that's that's what it sounds like. Um, my guess is that that phrase like was originated long before this experiment, and that that um, experiment probably just lent some support to it. I also wonder if this is the root of sort of like vicarious enjoyment. You always hear someone say like, oh, you know, I'm not feeling great. Why don't you go out and I'll, I'll vicariously like, like have fun through you. Or, or, um, you know, if you're in a relationship and one of your friends is out dancing, oh, I'll vicariously go. I wonder if mirror neurons factor into that as well. Sure. I, I think they do. I mean, think about social media. I mean, we're looking at other people doing things all day long and those mirror neurons are firing. I, I've went down the van life rabbit hole on Instagram where I, I see these people living these idyllic lives out of these beautiful vans. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they, <laughs> they probably have a lot of problems with, with, with their vans and stuff like that, that we don't <laughs> see on Instagram. But you know, when I'm, when I'm looking at that, especially during COVID, I, I would love to be traveling a lot more than I am right now. Like scrolling through this feed and seeing that I can only imagine that these, you know, like what's happening neurologically. Cause you know, most of us spend a lot of time on social media all day, every day. And, um, you know, that's doing things to our brains. 
Definitely. Definitely. I also think it's, it factors in when people are making decisions. And in the book, you give the example uh, that I think a lot of people can relate to of walking into a bar with your friend. Um, I, I don't know if you want to, if you want to flesh that out when you're at a bar with your friend and you're thinking about what to order, how mirror neurons might, might factor into that. So martinis are my favorite drink. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know how they came to be my favorite drink. But I, I have noticed a pretty funny thing. I think everybody's had the experience of walking into a bar and you have your mind set on one thing. Like you want to just order a cold beer and then your friend or somebody else at the bar orders some drink, some beautiful cocktail or a glass of wine or, or whatever. And you change your mind and you're like, oh, I, you know what? I'll, I'll have that instead. <laughs> so you know, in the book, I, I kind of joke around about how mimetic a martini is. And funny story, like as I was writing the book, um, there's a sports bar across the street from uh, where I used to live in DC. I, I've, I've moved to a different part of town. And every once in a while, I used to go into that sports bar after a long day uh, and just order a martini. And everybody at the bar knew that I was writing this book. I was friendly with them. So I'd sit up at the bar and uh, joke with the bartender and say, if I order a really good like gin martini, slightly dirty with three olives in it, I guarantee you that somebody else at this bar, and it's a sports bar, mind you, like pretty much the only thing that anybody drinks is beer usually at this place and watches sports. Somebody else will order a martini. Uh, and you know, it just became a running joke. And I'm telling you that four out of five times that I would do this, one other person at that bar would look over and just quote spontaneously <laughs> get the idea that a martini just happened to sound good. Yeah. I, I mean, you're, you're like, you're like one of those uh, high price mannequins in store windows on fifth <laughs> exactly. Avenue. Like that's, yeah. but, but I think, I think there's something to that, right? Like how many times do you walk into a restaurant and as you're being seated, you see the waiter bring over food for the next table and it's a, uh, you know, a delicious chicken parm or, um, or fish sandwich. And you just say, Oh my God, all, all of a sudden I, I I'm really craving fish. I mean, and, and I think that's, as you said, that's, that's like the imitation. That's the, the mirror and element of it. I actually, um, Growing up, I have sisters, so we would go out to eat, and I would always order my my food first, and um, you know maybe I get like a, a chicken wrap, and I kid you not, every single time my sister when she ordered second would always say, you know what, I changed my mind. That sounds really good. <laughs> I want that. So, so so I think that's really true. Yeah, I call that menu anxiety. Uh, I'm a pretty big foodie, and anytime my fiance and I go out, it's always like, what are you ordering? No, what are you ordering? Well, I want to know what you're ordering first because. Like there's nothing worse than ordering like the wrong thing and then looking across the table and realizing that, you know, Claire ordered something that looks way better than whatever. I ordered. <laughs> so we, so we engage in this like funny, like imitation game with each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I think a lot of people do that. You know, it's the first thing that we do when we sit down, we kind of look around and, oh, that looks good. That looks good. So I think ordering at restaurants is a really good example of how this works. And is that, so so you talk about how most people envision a straight line of desire between them and the things they want. Um, And and you argue that this line should be curved. Is is that part of why? Because you're factoring these other things into the equation? So when I say that the line between us and the things that we want, our objects of desire is not linear, but curved. I'm referring to the role of a model in how we desire things. And that desire is curved around or through a model who is modeling some form of behavior to us. And sometimes 
the model is hidden. So Gerard calls that the idea that our desire is linear from point A to point B, he calls that the romantic lie. Um, and in reality, there's, there's a model of desire for the things that we want that in some ways kind of like refracting light or sort of like bending our desires in, in, in some way. Um, so we look to, it's kind of like the child with the mother, right? The, the, the child's desire for that, for the flowers on the table um, is not a straight one. You know, mm. the child's eyes go to the mother and end of the flowers. So in a sense, you could think of that, that line of desire goes through the mother to the flowers. And that's what I mean when I say that, you know, the line is, is always curved and we usually don't realize who the hidden models are. You know, I, I consider myself a pretty mimetic person, probably less so than I was in my younger days. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would kind of move from one thing to the, to the next, uh, from, you know, from one college to the next college to, to, jo- to the job. And I would always sort of convince myself that it was kind of a straight line. Like what I wanted was a straight line. And when I look back on that period of decision-making, I see that, you know, my desire was bent and curved around the people that were in my life. And I cared deeply with what they wanted, even if I didn't acknowledge it at the time. So when I say that, you know, the the desire is curved, I'm I'm referring to the models that, that affect what we want. I wonder, so, so what you're saying sounds analogous to uh, the sleeper effect. I remember learning about it in psychology years back, the idea that um, sometimes when we are exposed to an advertisement or stimuli, we'll forget the source, but remember the message. So it's almost like if you watch an ad on TV or you, you, know, you see an, an, uh, an ad on your computer on YouTube for a certain ice cream sandwich, a day later when you're at the supermarket, you might be uh, you know, er, spontane- you might think you're spontaneously, you desire that sandwich, but in actuality, there's things happening under the hood in your brain that are driving you to desire that ice cream sandwich, whether it be hours or days earlier that you suddenly become unaware of when, when you come to make that, that decision. Mm, that's fascinating. Yeah. Advertisers have been using mimetic desire for decades, uh, kind of starting in the Mad Men period. They, they realized this is a extremely powerful tactic and that people do forget who the models are, as you said. So they'll use a celebrity or somebody that we admire to, to sell us a product. So rather than show us the product itself, they'll show us some super cool person wanting that product themselves. Mm. And we kind of see that on the TV. And, you know, most of us are like, ha ha ha, like funny Super Bowl commercial, um, cheesy. Uh, and then, you know, a week or a month later, um, we'll, we'll probably have forgotten about who that model was, but we'll probably, the next time we see that product, product, uh, we'll probably have a different relationship to it. Maybe we'll want it. Um, uh, we'll just look at it in a different light. And will often forget the models that influence that desire in the first place. That's, that's fascinating. Um, and I think, I, I wonder, I mean, we'll talk later on about being anti-memetic, but I wonder if having more control over your decisions means maybe like recognizing those models, being more vigilant and aware of them when you make these decisions. So I, wa- I want to come back to that. But uh, in the book, you talk about the application of a medic theory in, in romance and the whole wanting what you can't have phenomenon. So how does mimetic theory explain that experience? Yeah, so romance is also heavily affected by mimetic desire and the way that a desire for a certain person is modeled to us. Um, you know, it's kind of, uh, you know, going back to when we were kids and I'm going to get to romance, but if you throw a bunch of toddlers in a room full of toys uh, and, you know, one of them 
uh, seems kind of uninterested. He'll pick up one toy and then pick up another toy um, until he notices that one of his friends has just become fascinated with the shiny red fire truck over in the corner. And within seconds, all of a sudden, um, you know, that red fire truck becomes the object of his desire as well, right? He just kind of gravitates towards it. And this, this happens in, in romance all, all of the time. And I think people can kind of play uh, mimetic games, you know, and Gerard had experienced this in his life. Um, you know, to, just to, to use a simple example, right? You have uh, a guy who, you know, breaks up with his girlfriend, um, pretty confident in that, you know, that, hey, this just isn't working. Uh, you know, I want different things. Um, and, you know, is maybe just kind of like lost that romantic interest in her. And two weeks later, he's scrolling through Instagram and he sees her at a restaurant with this new guy, um, having a great time, smiling. Uh, and this guy is just absolutely crazy about her and, you know, just th thinks she's the most beautiful girl in the world. And they're just having this great time. And almost within seconds, as this guy is sitting on his couch, this newfound like desire is kindled in him for, you know, the, the, the very same girl that, you know, he was, he was sure just an hour ago, like he, he had moved on. And I think a lot of people can, can relate to that, that situation. Um, and it's because there, there's now been a, a new model for him, a, a, new, a new model of desire. Um, and, um, you know, she's saying, you know, I'm, I'm over you. Uh, but he, he, he now has a very powerful model, all the more powerful if this other kid is, you know, maybe a senior when he's a sophomore, he's on the basketball team or whatever. That is an extremely powerful model. Um, and literally transfigures like the, the, the value of this girl in his eyes. Now, I'm not in any way suggesting that, that you know, this is the way that we should or ought to value any, any human being. I'm just saying that this is a common experience that a lot of people have where they, they're like on this roller coaster where they're falling in and out of love or their desire seems to wane. And often they won't acknowledge or admit the, the, the powerful role that other people sort of play in, in, you know, who we're attracted to, who we gravitate towards. That's so interesting. It's interesting. I, I think there are almost alternative explanations for the example that you gave. Um, just, just to maybe uh, play devil's advocate for a moment in the situation of someone scrolling on, on social media and seeing their ex-girlfriend at a restaurant, potentially on a date and uh, feeling some, some dissonance, some remorse. Um, I wonder if, you know, there's almost like an economics explanation to it. Like, like supply and demand all of a sudden, if she's, if she's the commodity, um, and, uh, her, uh, there's more demand for her, so to speak, her, uh, parent value would be higher because there's other, other people, um, interested in her. So I think there's maybe a, a number of different explanations for it, but the modeling idea is, is, is pretty interesting. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, I don't think that mimetic desire is the only explanation. I think that it's, uh, I think there's pheromones, there's biological, you know, th there's a, there's a, a biological basis for attraction. Let, let me just be very clear about that. Mm -hmm. I think that mimetic desire is just, uh, you know, and there's economic factors. Um, there's all kinds of evolutionary things. Like we, we've evolved to, you know, sort of, um, pay attention to, you know, our security. Will I be secure with this person financially? And all of these things matter. I, I my point is that the role of mimesis and mimetic desire is, is undervalued. Um, 
and we see this in the example of somebody playing hard to get because we can also model desire for ourselves. So in a situation where, you know, I'm, uh, I'm courting somebody and I'm just like over eager beaver, you know, just like crazy, just like, just, you know, I'm basically modeling, um, a, a high desire for her, um, and not much of a, not much for myself, right? Not a, not a high value in my own self-worth. So in a sense, I, I, we can model the desire for ourselves and playing hard to get is just the opposite of that. Playing hard to get is where like I am modeling um, a high value for myself and like feigning uninterest or something like that. And just that little switch right there, like my modeling, my own um, unattainability or attractiveness, um, so it's, it doesn't have to be the model. Doesn't have to be a third person. It can be mm. ourselves, right? Um, can can change the perception of value in that other person. So th- this is an aside, Luke, but it just it just popped into my head. Um, but I think it, it adds a lot of credence to your uh, your model, your your um, uh, theory of of modeling and and how it plays into this. I actually spent some time in college uh, working with African gray parrots, and I would teach this one parrot colors and numbers. Um, shapes. And, you know, I'd ask him, what color is this? What shape is this? And then if he got it right, I'd give him a nut. But some days he just wasn't motivated to work with me. Parrots, uh, sort of like people, um, their motivations wax and wane. So my supervisor, Dr. Irene Pepperberg, she uh, had me use this technique. It was called the model rival technique. And I actually brought in a third student or a second student. And I would literally put the student on my right and the parrot griffin on my left. And I would ask the student, you know, what color is this? What shape is this? What, you know, uh, how many finger, you know, how many snaps? And when the student got it right, I would give the student a nut. And I kid you not, Luke, the parrot griffin would get jealous and would start performing um, uh, the experiment after the model rival technique. So I think it, it shows that the technique does involve a fair bit of this mimetic theory. That is fascinating. What were you, that is not a story that I hear every day. I was working with parrots while I was in college. What were you, what were you doing? What did I'm, you study? I'm not, I'm not sure um, if you're familiar with uh, with Alex the African Gray, but it's it's. I'm not. I guess the the, the TLDR is um, Alex was one of the the smartest, um, or if not the smartest parrot. Learned you know something like thousand fifteen hundred words. Had the intelligence of uh, a four year old child. Uh, working with Dr. Irene Pepperberg at, at Harvard University, and um, I I grew up with parrots. Uh, which which listeners to the pod know, and she actually spent some time at my my alma mater, Brandeis, doing research. So um, I connected with her. I got a, a position as a research assist- assistant in her lab, and she just put me to work. You know, teaching this African Greg Griffin, who is the successor to, to Alex when he passed away, teaching Griffin uh, the shapes and colors and numbers, and doing all these experiments. It wow. was I, I wasn't an avian uh, psych major or anything. It was more of just a passing interest of mine. <laughs> Oh, that's very cool. I, I mean, I wish I would have heard that story before I wrote the book because I, I feel like I'm going to need to ask you to send me some material on that so I can go down a rabbit hole after this podcast. It, you know, I mean, it demonstrates the the motivating force of a rival um, or a model, even in a parrot, uh, which I think is fascinating. I think it shows that uh, all the all the points that that you made in the book about 
imitation and the salience um, of of you know mimetics, it it's, that doesn't just stop at, at humans. Um, and I bet I, I wonder, you know, and this is another rabbit hole that you might have to go down, um, if if it also applies to dogs, right? Like if you're trying to teach your dog to sit, to lie down, to do tricks, you know, maybe bring in another dog and, and have them do it and, and incorporate that element of competition. But yeah, I, I would imagine that that does apply. I've been watching that. I can't remember the name. There's a show that I've been watching on Netflix about this dude in LA who's this master dog trainer. Um, I wish I could remember it, but I, I'm pretty sure that I've seen him use that exact tactic on the show. Mm. So I would imagine that, that it's, that it is true. I mean, we know that animals uh, are imitative. Gerard would just differentiate the way that humans imitate um, because we can imitate things that animals can't. So animals can imitate, you know, sounds like some birds can, um, gestures, uh, certain behaviors, but they don't have this world of desire that we have. And that's one of the ways that, you know, that we're so different and that we imitate so differently that we imitate these surface level things because of our powers of abstraction and intellect, um, that we imitate these deep, deep things that are not surface level representational things. And I think animals kind of stay on that level. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like a, a dog, like doesn't look at another dog that like wants to be a sherp herder and, 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 you know, a sheep herder and decide that all of a sudden I want to be a sheep herder too. Right. They don't have that like, <laughs> like that le- level of desire of imitation. So that, you know, I, I'm, I'm absolutely certain though, that, that this it probably has a role to play in, in animal behavior and training. Absolutely. No, no, I, I, I definitely agree with you there. Um, and returning, uh, I guess, to the human world, we've spoken a little bit about uh, applications of mimetic theory in the context of social media. And in the book, you argue that mimetic desire is the engine of social media. So, so what exactly did you mean by this? So Tristan Harris uh, and the documentary, The Social Dilemma and the Center for Humane Ecology, they're doing a lot of work showing the way that social media um has this addictive effect neurologically. So it actually stirs up chemicals in our brain, similar to the way that a slot machine does with intermittent variable rewards. All of those things are true uh, based on the research that I've seen. I think what's missing in the discussion of social media and the power of social media is the role of mimetic desire. And that when we're scrolling through social media, we're not merely like scrolling to learn new things. I mean, we, we often are. Um, or, you know, promote our brand and build a platform and all of the reasons that people say that they use social media deep down, we are seeing what other people want on social media. Oh, I, I, you know, buy Bitcoin. If you don't buy it, you, you know, like have fun staying poor, all of these things, like seeing what other people are pursuing and what other people want is, um, is happening all of the time all of the time, right? Like on Instagram with fashion models, uh, they're, they're modeling a desire for a certain lifestyle, a certain way of dressing, a certain um, kind of career. So that aspect of social media, to my mind, is far more powerful um, and important than um, just kind of the, the materialist physiological explanation for why we're so addicted to it. I think we're, we're actually addicted to mimetic desire. We're addicted to knowing and having to know what other people want at all times. And I talked to um, you know, Peter Thiel, the, the PayPal co-founder about this issue. He was one of the first investors in Facebook. He gave them half a million bucks before anybody else had, the first outside investor. And he told me that he knew that Facebook would be powerful because it was essentially um, an engine of desire because it was people going on Facebook 
to learn and take cues from other people about desire. Nobody would describe it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but in his view and in mine, mimetic desire uh, explains a lot of the fascination that we have for, for needing to know what other people are, are up to. And the deeper layer of just knowing what they're up to is knowing what they, what they want, where they want to go on a vacation, um, what kind of lifestyle they want. Um, Cause we're always looking for models and social media provides, you know, millions, frankly, billions of, of models for us. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think, I, I think mimesis sort of just puts, puts a name to, to what we all know to be true. I mean, I, I've, I've spoken about this a lot on the pod, actually a couple episodes back, talked to uh, BJ Fogg. He was Tristan Harris's uh, professor at Stanford. We talked about behavior design and screen time reduction. Um, and a lot of the points that he made about um, instilling better habits, it sounds like uh, just get to the heart of and being anti-memetic, which which we'll speak about. Um, but I think I, I think there is something to this this notion of of the danger of social comparison. I think that's why these these platforms um, really worsen anxiety and and uh, and depression in folks is because they're they're thriving on um, on memetic theory in in that they're measuring. Uh, how many people are endorsing and, and subscribing to your messages and and your your photos and your videos and they're actually uh, Luke they're just sort of quantifying um, this these feelings that we have of, of how to imitate each other and, and I think that's part of the reason why you know there's there's pushback against these platforms yeah and, and frankly you'll never find a good enough model so if you're on social media, and you find a model that has something that you want, if you get that thing, you will assume that you chose the wrong model. Because when you get that thing, um, you, it probably hasn't magically sort of transformed you and made you entirely happy the way that you may have thought it did. So th- the way that Gerard would put it is that, you know, we just go looking for another model. Mm-hmm. And it's like turtles all the way down. Like there, there's no, there's always, always another model out there. So that's where we have to be careful and just having the awareness of like, well, what, what is it that I'm actually looking for? Is it this surface level thing or is there some kind of, you know, d- deeper metaphysical desire? And, and that's where social media can be dangerous because, you know, it, one model falls, falls off of your radar. You don't care so much about them and you find another one immediately. Yeah, I wonder if, you know, as, as the, the dangers of social media becomes more a part of the, the public discussion, I wonder if, if we can reframe that dialogue to be to incorporate memetics and, and just, you know, think about how the reason why these things are so dangerous is because of what they of, of the fact that they place so much emphasis on imitation and awareness of what other people are doing, um, how sometimes it might actually pay to be ignorant, to be in the dark. Um, and I also wonder how FOMO factors into this, although that could be a, a whole nother, a whole nother conversation insofar as like people, you know, sometimes people don't want to know what other people are wearing, what other people are doing, how other people are, are spending their time. I mean, that could be part of it as well. Absolutely. And uh, I, I, Part of my mission is really to bring this discussion of mimesis and mimetic desire into the things that BJ Fogg and Tristan are doing. I I think it really should be part of that discussion and part of just our cultural awareness of what's going on. Because Mm. the next step in mimetic desire is that mimetic desire often leads to rivalry and anxiety and can make us miserable if we don't know that... um, you know, the, the reason that we're pursuing things has to do with, uh, with hidden models, uh, 
or we want something because somebody else wants it. And that, if you think about it, de facto, the default mechanism there is that we begin competing with them for for the same thing. So Mm -hmm. I think just an aware, and this affects politics, this affects uh, relationships with people, even people who are friends, this kind of, um, you know, Gerard would say that, uh, you know, rivalry is actually at the heart of human behavior because Mm -hmm. through mimetic desire, because we're imitative creatures, we just kind of naturally, without even knowing it, um, become rivals to, to other people. So I think it's really important. So that's a nice segue um, into the last thing I want to discuss with you, which is sort of solutions. And and in the book, you write a lot about being anti-memetic. You, you just uh, sort of alluded to being more aware of these things. Would you say that's that's at the heart of being anti-memetic? Awareness is the first step, no doubt. So I view memetic desire as this hyper object, meaning it's like all around us, like gravity. So what, what gravity is to physics, mimetic desire is to psychology. Okay. So it's all around It's something that's affects us pretty much every second of every day. Um, but like gravity, you know, we don't see it and we normally forget that it even exists. So part of being anti-mimetic is developing some, you know, some muscles to combat mimesis. Like if we don't develop physical muscles, uh, if we have like a super weak core and back, you know, gravity will take its toll on us. It'll make us, it'll make us hurt. Um, so we have to sort of develop a certain uh, resistance antibodies might be another way to say it. Um, and that starts with awareness first, like seeing the ways in which we can be drawn into pursuing things due to um, mimesis. I think for instance, uh, people that, um, are very adamant and rush to support some um, ideological or political cause. I think have to ask themselves to have to have a sufficient level of awareness to like do the math, like do the work. Like, how did you, how did you get there um, before just assuming that it's what you want to fight for? Um, like, d- did you actually like do, do the work to arrive at that position um, in a rigorous way or was it sort of through social contagion? Now that's one example, but just being aware of our uh, human propensity to to imitate others, um, especially in times of uncertainty and crisis, uh, people are even more mimetic. Like we we we, it's kind of a it's a it's a defense mechanism. We gravitate towards what other people are doing, what other people are wanting. So becoming aware, having the the level of introspection to like understand how we arrived at a certain decision or how we came to want a certain thing. Uh, is really, really important. And I believe, you know, part of that is establishing uh, some clear boundaries, um, maybe with our relationship to social media, that's, that's a good start. Uh, you know, taking some more time for self-reflection. Um, there's a lot, I mean, as you know, there's, there's 15 kind of steps and tactics in the book, uh, ways that, that have worked for me. Uh, they're not exhaustive, um, but I think developing those anti-mimetic muscles to be able to like resist that that mimetic pull when we need to. I mean, sometimes mimesis is not it's not a bad it's not an entirely bad thing. Like we can be inspired by role models, and you know, mimesis um, that mimetic desire to be more like like a great person, some role model in history or in our lives, uh, can be a tremendously positive thing. What we need to recognize and what we don't often acknowledge are the negative mimetic models in the form of uh, a, a political rival or somebody in our workplace who's competing with us for the same position that can lead us to take our eye off the ball um, 
and can like pull us into these nasty mimetic rivalries without us really even knowing that that's happening to us. Yeah, I, I think, and and one thing you mentioned, which which I really appreciated, is you talk about how part of overcoming a mimetic impulse is understanding um, meaningful achievement, which which I thought I thought was interesting, and and I hadn't heard about before. So, uh, for folks that haven't read your book yet, what is what does this entail? So, I describe it in the book as the difference between thin desires and thick desires. What is a thin desire? A thin desire is the kind of highly mimetic desires that are ephemeral and fleeting. Yeah, I want one thing today and another thing tomorrow. And some of us, including me, uh, I went through a large part of my life, uh, I think, driven by those thin, more highly mimetic desires. A thick desire, on the other hand, is kind of beneath the surface of these kind of mimetic winds and waves, right? A thick desire is something where we can drop down and find a desire that perhaps we've had for a very long time. It's kind of like layers of rock mm -hmm. being built up throughout our lives. And one of the ways I think to combat the, the thin desires largely driven by mimesis is like drilling down and finding what those thick desires are. And one of the tactics that I've used for about the last 10 years now in my life and with everybody that I've ever hired and most of the people that I work with is a, uh, a process for finding what those thick desires are. And I like to ask people a very simple question. Tell me about a time in your life. You can go back to as early as you can remember. Okay. It could be like little league baseball, any, any time in your life when you undertook some action and you achieve something, um, that brought you this deep, deep sense of satisfaction and fulfillment. It's the kinds of things that you were doing where you were in flow, like you lost track of time. And when you achieved that thing, it gave you this enduring, not a, like a fleeting, like not like you were excited for 20 minutes, but an enduring sense of satisfaction to the point where to, even today might be 20 years later, just thinking about that thing, like stirs up this, this joy inside of you, this satisfaction. And they tell me one of those stories. And then I said, well, what was it specifically in particular that you think was so satisfying to you about pitching that no, no hitter in little league? Because if you ask 10 different people that have ever done that, like the reason that that was so satisfying to that 10 different answers to why that was so satisfying. So there's, there's some desire that was driving them, right? Something that they were seeking in that particular experience. And then I ask them for another story and another story. And you, you ask people for four or five of these, what I call fulfillment stories. And if you do that, the fascinating thing, without them even knowing it or trying to draw connections between the stories, you'll very often find some pattern to that, like, like some core motivational drive, something that was pushing them to achieve a distinct pattern of results throughout all of those things that they describe as deeply fulfilling to them. And I, I mentioned in the book, that is a sign. It's a, it's a hint that there's something there that you need to pay attention to because that's a sign pointing you to some thick desire that you have. That's beautiful. I mean, it almost sounds like a catharsis or, or something therapeutic about that of going like scanning your brain for something um, uh, to your point that you think you did well and brought you a sense of fulfillment and then actually uh, verbalizing it or potentially writing it down. Um, do you have a specific fulfillment story that, that you want to share? Yeah, well, it, it's thank you for asking. It's a great uh, it's a great question. And uh, 
I just, I just want to say, before, I'll, I'll sh- happy to share one with you. Um, writing this book is actually a fulfillment story for me. Uh, but most of us have forgotten a lot of those fulfillment stories. And we don't honor ourselves enough to like take the time to mine our histories and our past. Uh, and, to, and to also, you, you said something very important, to put it into words, to put it into language, to articulate for the very first time, maybe in years, to another human being. And then to have that other person um, receive that story, to learn something deeply personal about, about me, uh, and then reflect back to me a, a, a bit about what they heard. That's like a beautiful exercise to go through. So this, this actually works best when it's not a solitary uh, recounting, when it comes in the context of, of a conversation. So one of my stories uh, you know, was simply creating, inventing an orange peeling machine in my fifth grade science class, right? Wow. That's one of them. Another one. Um, so that, that's not like a worldly kind of achievement. Most people wouldn't think anything of that, but it was important to me. And, you know, that's why like paying attention to what it was about that specifically uh, is, is super important. So like these things don't have to be impressive to anybody else other than you, right? That the whole point of this exercise is that they're, they're highly personal. And why was creating an orange peeling machine? I never actually made the machine, by the way. Uh, right. I just like had it like mapped out and I had like diagrams and pictures of it, but I'm pretty sure it would have worked if I would have built it. Um, and, and you know, that to this day, and like my teacher loved it. I presented to the class. Um, like what was it that was so fulfilling to me about that? Well, it wasn't actually the praise that I got from the teachers. Like it wasn't gaining that response. That was a motivating factor for me. Uh, it was kind of, um, this act of, of, inventing this valuable thing that didn't exist in the world and trying to like incarnate it and, and communicate this, this value to other people, like what, why we need this orange peeling machine. And uh, that was kind of like a hint probably of, of this like drive, this very natural kind of entrepreneurial drive that I have, even though I didn't realize it at the time. Um, and like mining that experience, I, I mean, I, we could go deep into it, but you know, I had never, I'd forgot about that experience until the first time that I did this exercise. Mm-hmm. And as I sat with, with my life, reflecting on what's been meaningful to me, it, that just bubbled up and it kind of surprised me, you know, it's like, wow, like that was that important to you, Luke? Like, <laughs> but that's, some, that's something to pay attention to. Out of your entire book, this was maybe one, maybe some of the most powerful stuff that you had in there. I, I think you could flesh this out into a, a whole nother book, just fulfillment stories, because there's so much to unpack there when you think about like what what makes up a person's identity and how, um, you know, profoundly defining some of these experiences are. Uh, so I don't know, uh, m- m- maybe sit on that and, and that, that could turn into another, another venture altogether. But, you know, y- you note that towards the end of the book, you talk about how one of the solutions might be for people to pick one desire to suffer over and let go of lesser desires, sort of like what you said about thick versus thin desires. It almost sounds like, I'm sure you've read Mark Manson's literature, mm-hmm. but like choosing, w- choosing one thing to give a fuck about and then letting go of, of the fucks for everything else. Yep. Um, so is that, is that sort of what you were going for? It's sort of what I was going for. And I think the language, I, I think I quote in, in that last chapter of the book, Naval Ravikant from Angel List, mm-hmm. um, who's brilliant and, and very thoughtful. And he pulls that from, from Eastern philosophy. He's kind of, I think he describes himself as a rational Buddhist or something like that. And I, I think it's a beautiful thought that, you know, our desires are, are finite and, you know, and we can't, 
can't desire everything. And, um, you know, as we go through life, we we're going to have to let go of some things, um, in order to move closer to the things that we want. This is true in relationships. It's true with careers. So in my language, um, that does come down to identifying those, those thick desires. Um, and it can take, it's a process, you know, I don't expect anybody to be able to do it, um, from listening to this podcast or overnight or anything like that. Uh, it's a process of discernment of understanding, you know, what is your single greatest desire? And then little by little letting go of some of those thin desires that, uh, keep you from wanting that thick desire as much as maybe you should. And I actually think like, you know, desire doesn't just happen. Like we, we can, we can shape our own desires. Like mm. we can, we can like want to want something and, and not desire it an, enough. Right. Like um, this is true in like a marriage, we get married to a person and our, our love for that person, we have a role to play in like uh, in, in shaping the way that our desire unfolds over the course of our lives. Will we get pulled away by all kinds of thin desires, which at the end of our life, we may look back on and say, wow, like I, I got on this kick and for fantasy football for those five years and spent every Sunday, not, not even, you know, paying attention to my spouse and my kids. And man, I wish I wouldn't have done that. Um, so it's, it's like cultivating the thick desires that are really important to us and understanding the ones that are thin. I love fantasy football, by the way, I'm not <laughs> knocking it at all, but, but yeah. the, 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 the point is, is that we need to be intentional about what we want. Yeah, I'm a fantasy baseball uh, fan myself, so I can only imagine how, how much how much time and energy I've, I've burned. I've burned in that respect. Um, so, so when you talk about thick or or you know you, you call them in the book transcendent desires, what what's like an example if, if folks you know want to wrap their mind around that? Yeah, so an example of a transcendent desire it, it, it's it's a desire for something that comes out of the kind of closed system of desires that, that you're in. So I think that every kind of family system often has like certain, uh, certain desires that kind of like uh, circumscribe like, like what most people in the family want. So an example of a transcendent desire would be somebody who, you know, found maybe a model outside of that family system. Like, let's say that, you know, everybody in the family is a doctor, both parents are doctors and, mm -hmm. you know, the children is, is expected to be a doctor too and go to medical school. Um, if that child finds a model that sort of transcends that, that what I call an imminent uh, framework of desire, right? Um, all of a sudden there's kind of a new desire or a new model that transcends that, that framework that exists that can actually help people go, go beyond whatever that existing uh, kind of framework was. So that's, that's one that I think a lot of people can relate to. In the book, I tell the story of a French chef who, you know, ran a, a Michelin, three Michelin star restaurant. It's very good. And he had been completely kind of enclosed in the system of desires that the Michelin guide, which rates restaurants, um, and all of the other chefs were kind of very subservient to whatever the guide and the inspectors wanted. And finding a, a desire, a transcendent desire outside of that system that told him what he should want. He should want three Michelin stars and he should want to keep them. Hmm. Finding a transcendent desire um, to create things um, that maybe the Michelin inspectors wouldn't like, um, that you know perhaps might even make him lose one of his prized Michelin stars. Um, that transcendent desire was able to help him escape from a really kind of a, a rat race or a system 
that had no end in sight, right? It pulled him out of a certain kind of slavery to the desires or to the things that people told him he should want, which is Michelin system. Yeah, I, I loved I loved that example in the book. Um, relatable in, in the the career context as well. When you know you're thinking about what do you want to do, um, and and sort of weighing you know money and prestige compared to doing what you love and and being intrinsically motivated. So I think listeners um, can also can relate to that example that you gave. So throughout the book, you know, Luke, you include tactics, and and I want to end this conversation by asking you about the final tactic that you list in the book. Um, which is live as if you had a responsibility for what other people want. Did you come up with that? Those are my own words. Yeah. Mm. Um, it's beautiful. I, I, beautiful. I, I love that. Well, thank you. Um, and and I, I think I was inspired by partly by C.S. Lewis, uh, who in his essay, the, the weight of glory basically says, you know, we take for granted a lot of our ordinary interactions and the people that we come across uh, each and every day. Uh, and he's, he basically says something to the effect of um, don't forget that, you know, every single person that you come into contact with C.S. Lewis, you know, of course, is, was a Christian and he was speaking about this in the context of, of heaven. Okay. Um, don't forget that every, every person that you come into contact with is an immortal creature, you know, that, that, that has this end. Um, and, and, and you, based on the way that you interact with them, uh, are either helping them get a little bit closer to that, to, to their end or a little bit further away from it. And, and that's powerful, right? To like call, call that to mind uh, each and every day. I think uh, David Foster Wallace was saying something very similar in his This Is Water essay. So live as, as if you had a responsibility for what other people want is, is just a variation on, on that because if desire is in fact social um, and that I'm, I'm kind of not the, um, the, the king of my own desire, but that the people that I'm surrounded with affect my desires. The next step in that process is realizing that I also affect other people's desires as well. I'm a teacher and, you know, my students, most of them, 18, 19 years old are, are looking very closely at me and what I want. I mean, let's say that they, they see very quickly that the only thing I seem to care about, the only thing that I want is making more money. Well, that's going to affect their desires. Uh, so I feel this tremendous like uh, weight of responsibility because I do know that I'm responsible in part for the formation of their desires. I think that the, the most important role of a teacher is not just imparting information. It's actually like forming the desire to learn, the desire in the students. So th that's where that comes from. And I think living our lives in that way, uh, where we have an awareness of that, that our actions and our desires actually affect other people, um, we can begin, I think, uh, to begin building a, a better world where we don't look at other people as rivals, um, but but as people that have desires of their own and that our desires and theirs are not as separate as we sometimes think that they are. So contrary to what you may have heard, anyone can be an influencer. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> I think that that uh, that reson resonated a lot with me. Um, and, and, and yeah, I, I think that was a great way to to conclude the book. Luke, listen, this has been a wonderful conversation to all those listening. Be sure to check out Luke's latest book, Wanting the Power of a Medic Desire in Everyday Life. I believe it comes out uh, beginning of June, correct? June 1st. That's right. 
June 1st. And I'm not even, you know, just saying this, I told you off, off, offline, it was a, a fun book to read sort of right in my psych and neuro wheelhouse. And I got to say, uh, my favorite part of the book was when you talked about how memetic theory applied in the show Seinfeld. I'm not going to spoil that, but <laughs> listeners should buy the book for the Seinfeld passage alone. Thanks so much, Ricky. It's been fun. Um, glad you enjoyed it. And, um, if you want to learn more about memetic theory without necessarily reading the whole 85,000 word book, I publish a Substack stack uh, called anti-memetic pretty much weekly. So that those are bite-sized chunks. And I'm sure listeners also want to know where they can go to follow you and learn more about your work in general. I'm not sure if you're on the socials. I'm on all the socials, man. So lukeburgess.com, uh, pretty active on Twitter. I'm pretty chatty, uh, Instagram. Uh, and then my Substack is very easy to find. It's just read.lukeburgess.com read.lukeburgess.com. I'll be sure to check that out. Luke, thank you so much again for joining me. I really appreciate you taking the, the time. Thanks again, Ricky. There you have it, guys. That was my conversation with Luke Burgess. I want to touch on a couple of things that um, that we brought up in the discussion and uh, a few things that we didn't. But first of all, I certainly learned a lot about uh, memetic theory in preparation for our conversation. Sort of as I alluded to um, in the discussion, I had never known about it, but then in, in reading Luke's book, there are so many applications of mimesis in everyday life. Luke actually gives a great example of one in the book um, of a man who offers another man his hand for a handshake. If the second man refuses to imitate the first man by not extending his hand, the first man will almost always mirror the second man in withdrawing and acting inhibited. Um, and so that's sort of an example of the triumph of imitation. Uh, in the book, he calls this a negative mimetic cycle. Uh, and you see it you know, in the virtual world too with, with emails. And we talked about uh, mirroring tone in an email or in a text message. If someone texts you and they're sending you know, sh- short texts, maybe with passive aggressive periods, you're probably gonna respond with some short texts or some uh, passive aggressive periods. Uh, that's like the idea of matching someone's tone. Um, same thing in an email. If, you know, if someone sends you a casual email with haha, LOL, and, and you're like, oh, I didn't know, I didn't know that, uh, that, that, you know, my, my coworkers, I didn't know I was at this point in my relationship with my coworkers where you could send haha and LOL, then you're probably going to say the same thing. Whereas if someone says, you know, uh, I, I regret to inform you that I have to uh, depart from work early, sincerely, uh, whatever, then that's probably going to be the tone that you have. So there is an element of, of imitation of memetics in, uh, those sorts of interactions too. And the whole concept of a fulfillment story is just so intriguing to me because I I think that it's it's actually more difficult than it sounds to, you know, call to mind something that you believe you did well, um, that's an action. Number one, it's an action. Number two, you believe you did it well. And number three, brought you a sense of fulfillment. Uh, it's it's not as easy as it sounds um, to, to think about those experiences, those memories that really stay with you and, and have an emotional impact. Um, for me, just listening to, to Luke's orange peeling uh, example, there are a couple. I uh, And most of them, believe it or not, were, were long ago. Most of them were from growing up. Uh, I remember when, and this is a, a story I've never told in the podcast before, and I'm, I'm, I'm wondering whether or not I, I should, but uh, have I not? I don't think I've told this on the, on the podcast before, but when I was in second grade, um, I... I started what was called the Taco Club, where essentially everyone would bring <laughs> it actually sounds kind of messed up, but everyone would bring in their lunch and most people got like, you know, um I think I have told this story before because I'm I'm remembering the Teddy Grams, but everyone would bring in their lunch and most people 
um, would have maybe like a sandwich with some goldfish or Cheez-Its or Oreos or gummies, whatever, or Teddy Grahams in my case. And what I did is I would take Ziploc bags from home and I would pull together uh, people's snacks. I would take like some, some goldfish, some chocolate, some Dunkaroos. I put a little bag and I'd sell them uh, to the other kids in the cafeteria. <laughs> and, um, you know, mind you, I was, what, six, seven years old? But I, uh, I would sell these little bags of food, these snacks, um, to the other kids in the cafeteria. And we called it the Taco Club because I charged, if I remember correctly, like 25 cents, 50 cents a bag, um, which back in, uh, when was this? This was like the late 90s. That was a lot of money. And I would pay employees. Um, <laughs> I would come home and have like a, a massive stack of quarters and I would pay some of my employees in the club uh, the the wage and uh, and then I started having I, I could have sworn I might have this podcast is getting so old because this is year two of the pod actually no it's more than year two this is like year two and a half that uh, I I am vaguely getting deja vu of me telling this story before but uh, I I would essentially have like specials where one day was buy one get one right like you buy one bag from the taco club you get a second snack bag free i would have toys uh toy toy uh toy day where you buy a bag from taco club you get toys and then um i'd also have what else did i have i had uh uh some giveaway where i brought in some of my mom's leftover meatloaf from from the previous night oh this is okay this is where i remember this from i used to when, when I had that blink and you missed it stint as a, a stand-up comedian, I think this was a bit I used to do about how uh, I, yeah, I would bring in my mom's leftover food and, and give it away as part of the taco club. <clears throat> anyway, we, we eventually got shut down. Uh, no charges were filed, thankfully. Clean criminal, clean criminal record. But um, it was, you know, it's sort of like a fulfillment story for me because it's, it's something that uh, brought me a lot of joy, like running my own business as a little kid and working with people and being collaborative. And I, that was one. Another experience I have was when I was also very young, I was maybe like 10, 11 years old, I built a go-kart in my uh, garage with my sister, but we didn't have any fancy equipment or tools, so what I did was I took a piece of plywood, I took the wheels off of um, one of those those spinny chairs, a swivel chair, and I, what else did I take? I I think I took the seat, some seat off an exercise machine and I took the plywood the the wheels off of the swivel chair and the exercise seat machine I think I, I put it together with screws it was very very unsafe and then I painted it black and blue and I wrote my name on it I put some cardboard over it and that was that was an amazing experience just to make something with my bare hands and the the, the last example I'll give of a film a fulfillment story for my life is when I uh let's see when I was in middle school um my friends and I, we, we had all these little songs like, uh, I, I don't think these guys listen to the podcast, but we had, uh, we had these songs about like, we were, we were Mets fans and, uh, there was a player at Delgado. Um, we had a song about him and we had all these, all these different, different songs about the Mets players and about our little friend group. And I made, and I'm not I'm not a musician or anything like that, but I made like an album, um, like a like a CD cover for our songs, and it was like a list. That we we made a band, the uh, the R W J R Experience was the name of the band, and we made songs, and um, I we didn't actually even burn anything onto a CD. It was just like the process of writing down, writing down the the songs and 
sharing it and all that and planning much like with luke and his example of the orange orange peeling machine which he never ended up building it's the same thing like i never ended up recording the um the cd of our band in you know seventh grade but um just the experience brought me a lot of fulfillment and uh man i've just burned a a little bit of time uh sort of reminiscing about these experiences but i think i think this show is like Man, it is it is fun. It is fun, and it's it's cathartic to go back and you know think about a time in your life, an experience you had that you think you did really well, and that brought you a lot of of fulfillment and enjoyment. So I challenge all you guys, you know, to to um, take a moment if you want to pause the podcast, if you want to do it after the podcast is over, and just go back and think, you know, what's an action that you think you did well and brought you fulfillment? Um, you know, the, the meaningful achievement fulfillment stories that Luke writes about. Uh, I think, I think it's, uh, you know, I think there's something, there's something to that. And, and it all comes back to that last message that, uh, Luke had, which was living your life as if you have a responsibility for what other people want. Um, you know, we, we talked about the examples in a bar, a restaurant, when you order a dish or, or drink and all of a sudden it's like, it's like you're, you're modeling it, you're, you're a mannequin. Um, and, uh, and other people start ordering that that's true. Or if you're posting something on social media, just being mindful of the fact that, you know, you're, maybe you have a thousand followers on social media and not a lot of people like your stuff. I promise you there's hundreds of people that are scrolling past your photo and your video every day and it has an impact. Um, and that impact might not have the same effect on, on one person as, as it does on another. So I guess it's just important to, you know, to remember that we are highly imitative creatures from birth, right? Like no matter, uh, how, how different we are culturally, um, or in terms of gender, race, religion, ethnicity, at the end of the day, as the experiment showed in the seventies, all the babies that come out, within 40 minutes are able to imitate the facial expressions of the doctor, of the experimenter. Um, and, you know, research has shown that some emotions are universal across races, right? That's the experiment where um, contempt and fear and uh, disgust, all that is the same. So I think that's that's important to remember as well. And uh, definitely, definitely check out Luke's book. Uh, there's there's actually a lot of of interesting vignettes and factoids that I didn't even cover here. Like, like I'll, I mean, I'll, give, I'll literally give you one right now. He mentions at one point, people blind from birth don't dream in images because their brain has no images to work with. They dream in sensations and sounds, um, like, you know, falling into a manhole and getting hit by a car. Uh, whereas people who go blind during their life can still dream using all the sensory inputs their brain received back when they could see. So that's just like one example out of honestly like dozens and dozens throughout the book um, of of all the interesting applications of of memetics. So uh, definitely definitely check out the book, and I'm gonna I'm gonna be returning to a lot of what we spoke about uh, in in future episodes. So I actually have a two part episode coming up for all of you, and it is about futurology or futurism. It's it's basically the study of forecasting the future. There's actually a whole field of people who make predictions about what the world's going to look like in, say, 2050 or 2100. So next week, I'll be talking to uh, Ian Pearson about this in part one of the Futurology series, (laughs) and uh, followed by a conversation with Tracy Follows in part two of the Futurology series. We'll be talking about the toilet of the future, uh, sex with robots, homes served by robots, 3D printed fast food, flying vehicles, uh, robotic pets, e-babies, and even, you guys, a digital 
afterlife. I mean, this is the stuff that I live for. I'm, I'm really excited um, for the next couple episodes for the special two-part Futurology series that's coming up next week on Nervous Habits. Thanks so much for listening, guys. This has been another episode of Nervous Habits Podcast. You can follow the pod on social media, on Instagram at Nervous Habits Podcast, on Twitter at Nervous Habits underscore, write to the pod via email, nervousheppispodcast at gmail.com. You can watch full episodes and clips on YouTube. Just search Nervous Habits Podcast. And remember, if you're meeting a friend at the bar, no matter how badly you want a beer, if he orders a martini, you'll probably end up ordering a martini as well. <laughs> Take care and stay nervous.